You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat. The scientist, the writer, the artist is challenged. If we were facing an alien threat from outside this world, the challenge must be taken up. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, where we love our institutions so much we have to burn them down. You can talk back at us at our Facebook page, Twitter, or our website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com. And whether you love to hate us or hate to love us, please go to iTunes and review the show. That helps other people find us. Now sit back and enjoy. All right, and speaking of senses of decency, today we're going to be looking at a perhaps hyper-extended version of that. Uh, the institution that we're going to be exploring today is, I guess, the tr- Christian tendency or trend of banning or boycotting things that are offensive in some way to some uh, form of Christianity. Uh, this is a, a fun show. We're going to try and, uh, if you're listening to this, it's right around Banned Books Week. And last year we did something with Jay Eldred. Uh, and Jay's back for this one. Jay, how you doing today? I'm doing just fine. That's great. Uh, as we were recording, uh, this is still the summer and getting ready to go back to school. I'm sure you're looking forward to that. Oh, yeah. Uh, for me, as we're recording, uh, we start in two weeks. So. Oy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's coming quick uh, and it will be, you know, practically midterms by the time anybody hears this. So uh, mm-hmm. but uh, that's OK. And joining Jay and I today is Megan Von Bergen. This is her, I think, third time on the show. Uh, and this is her idea, actually. Megan, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Yep. And it is, in fact, my third time. So. <laughs> that's yeah. great. And the first two were great, I thought so. Um, and uh, it's interesting. It's kind of an ideal show for me in a lot of ways because I love it when People can ask us to cover a certain topic and then volunteer to come on the show and do it with us. Uh, so if you're out there and listening and uh, enjoy what we do on this show and you have an idea that you think uh, you'd like to participate in a conversation about, uh, by all means, contact the show. We have a Gmail account um, that you can find on the website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com. And uh, we have a Facebook page and all that stuff. You can get in touch with us and let us know what you're thinking. Uh, Megan, what were you thinking uh, when you uh, submitted this idea? idea so I teach introduction to literature every year at a faith-based college and so every year I've got students who raise a very strong objection against our text or against the characters because they are not uh, behaving in a because the characters aren't behaving in a biblical manner or because the text isn't written from a biblical worldview and uh, they want to take this as a as a point of criticism and 
I have I have smart students. I walk them through, uh, you know, a, a more nuanced way to look at literature and to read literature, um, learning to find truth even in non-Christian texts, and they get it, and they do fantastic. Um, but I think that my students are representative of this larger public idea that if it's not Christian, we have no business reading it, or we're not going to be able to learn from it, and that drives me a little bit nuts. <laughs> so I talk about it any chance I get. Um, well, that's great. And it's a great topic for this show, too, because it's one of those, I think, failures, if not of the Christian mind, then of the Christian imagination, I think. And uh, and I think that makes it a perfect subject for what we're doing here. Uh, Jay, do you have any sort of uh, personal? I mean, you teach at sort of the high school level, I think. Right. Um, right. And so it's a little different for you since you have minors. Um. Yeah, it's, it's a little different. Um, I've run into that. What Megan's talking about a little bit. Um Every once in a while, I'll get someone pushed back if I assign a reading from Shakespeare. And then in, when I get to the 1920s, normally I'll try to assign a reading from uh, Fitzgerald or someone like that. And they'll push back because it's a worldly author. And what can we ever learn from them? And it's like, well, you know, it does kind of show what America was going through at the time. And you might want to know that. But <laughs> anyway. Yeah, and so are yours mostly from the parents? Do you ever get... Uh... Um, my, mine are mostly from the parents. Every once in a while, I'll have a more advanced student that will that will question it. Um, in addition to that, I also deal with the, the uh, issues when a business or something like that will make a decision that evangelicals don't particular, particularly care for. Then, you know, we should be boycotting Target, Starbucks, Walmart, Disney, what have you. Yeah, that is, so there. I guess I should. I, uh, that's a good place to to note that we are kind of talking about a general trend that has different instantiations, right? And so one version of this is the kind of banning of cultural objects or the boycotting or avoidance of challenge, literature that challenges a Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so in the other end of that is a more commercial version of this. And so if, like you, you mentioned the Starbucks uh, cup, uh, that's a perfect example of that end of this. And I, I kind of think they're related enough that we can talk about both. Uh, Megan, I don't know if that's what you had in mind, but how do you feel about that? It's not what I had in mind, but I'm happy to talk about both. Um, I can see how they're definitely like two branches of the same tree. And so um Sure. Let's talk about that. Sounds okay. fun. Okay. That's great. Um, well, let, let's start, I guess, I'm, my own little uh, personal experience here. Um, I don't teach at a evangelical college now. I teach at a, as a, a Sisters of Mercy uh, Catholic school right now. And we don't have uh, the sort of traditional fundamentalist student uh, typically that comes here in big numbers. I think most of our students think of this as a secular education. And, uh, and so this doesn't come up very often. It's a little related to the concept of trigger warnings, I think, on, at, the, at the level that I face it at. I don't want to... Um, uh, I, I'm very reticent about exposing students to something without giving them a little bit of context that they're going to be encountering something that may be offensive to them on some level. I there's a, a previous podcast we uh, is a conference that I was a part of that I read a paper about this um, this process, um, but for in that 
paper, I talked about teaching the Alan Moore graphic novel from hell, which is pretty graphic, both in terms of violence and sexuality, frankly. And so I really felt like I wanted to warn students about that um, so that I wouldn't get in trouble, basically, <laughs> just so they had uh, full disclosure that what was about to happen. And nobody ever said anything. Uh, this was nobody. Nobody cared, I guess. And so uh, I have in the past, though, taught at a, an evangelical school. And even there, I had very few students who had any kind of that gave me any sort of pushback on content I suppose there was one student I remember we were reading the short story the things they carried by Tim O'Brien which is a Vietnam war story and it had language basically and uh, some oh I guess allusions to drug use and that sort of thing um, and this person outright refused to read the book the story uh, for for spiritual reasons and I just sort of let her go I mean like well just you won't talk that day I suppose I didn't have any kind of punitive thing built into that but it did get me thinking about why it is it was so awful for her to read something that had offensive words had naughty words in it um, what do you guys think? I guess we'll start with Megan since this is her show idea. What is the motivation? What motivates people to avoid and outright ban the consumption of certain cultural objects? I really think that it, okay, so this might sound like I'm reading too much into it, but I do think that there's this idea that not reading this kind of thing um, makes us better people. Um, okay. makes us holier people as though we we can advance closer to God by, by not consuming this kind of thing or that we fulfill our Christian duties uh, better by not consuming this kind of thing. That's what I was going to say. I, honestly, it, it's, a, it's a point of moral superiority that we don't associate with these things where the people participating in that are not associating with those things. We're always, you always have to be on the alert about winks and what I call winks and nudges from uh, from Disney cartoons, from DreamWorks, from anybody else. There are themes that they want to work into these films that they can't work in as openly as they'd like, so they kind of keep them subtextual and subliminal for the most part. None of the specific gags in this film is really a big change. It's just the sheer number of them, from uh, LeFou saying to Gaston, who needs her when you've got us? To the moment when he bears his chest to reveal a bite mark from Gaston on his chest, to the closing gag where he dances with another man who is uh, dressed in women's clothes earlier in the film. Is that harmful to kids? I mean, would you take kids to see this? I wouldn't. And I, I do want to jump in here um, because I agree with Jay that I, I think it's a point of moral superiority. And some people are are aware of this, right? And they do the pharisaical thing where, you know, thank God I am not like those people who <laughs> read the things they carried or whatever. But a lot of people aren't uh, necessarily. They say, you know, this is... Um, they're not consciously aware that they're making a decision that it comes from moral superiority and bad theology. I would argue that in a lot of cases, not all cases, but a lot of cases, it, it still is rooted in that. They're just not doing it purposefully or maliciously. 
Yeah, I think that there's a good intention there. I think that they think yeah. themselves of seeking. I mean, I come from a holiness tradition on the Wesleyan mm-hmm. end of the the whatever scale, and uh, uh, I, you have this idea of poisoning your mind with uh, with with ick, right? That is going to then seep into your soul and and distract you from your walk from God. Uh, and, and so I think. I, Growing up in that kind of an environment, I totally uh, can relate to their motivation. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think that that's a good way to be kind uh, to people who <laughs> make bad decisions about art, I suppose, uh, is, is to think of them in, their, in the best sense. I do think that they are trying to uh, serve God in the way the best way that they they know how to right uh, and so i guess what i'm interested in exploring in this show is how it is as a culture that we have um designated what things are distracting to your christian faith and what things are okay to towards your christian faith right um and so yeah i think that's that's sort of one of the key questions we'll probably be keep coming back to uh, at some point during the show um, I think we should start with a little bit of historical context, though, and we happen to have a historian here with us <laughs> today, uh, uh, Jay. Uh, so I don't know like, uh, how far back we can take this, but how far back can we take this to you? Hmm. I, I guess it would, we would have to ask ourselves what we actually mean or what definition we're going to use for boycotting something. Because I imagine if we looked hard enough, we could go back throughout history and find things that anti-Christian or something that Christians should not associate with based on culture. But so I'm um, yeah, obviously I would think even in the Bible there there are uh, admonitions to avoid um, certain kinds of behaviors, right, and certain kinds of cultural activities that are going on in a pagan Roman Roman world. And I would think that a lot of contemporary versions of this this activity that we're talking about they would look to those as biblical sources for their decision to not go see last temptation of Christ or something. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, so I think that this probably has a long tradition with any kind of moral system at all. Right. Um, and, uh, the early Megan, do you have any idea of like sort of, uh, historical, uh, precedents for this? Only within, only within the field of literature. I mean, you, when, when novels first started coming out, they were considered to be quite salacious, mm-hmm. uh, of course, and you don't read the novel in in good Victorian England and before. Um, although right now I'm actually reading uh, some Marilyn Robinson, the her book of essays, The Givenness of Things, and she takes delight in pointing out that these people who are who are Puritans. Uh, who read a bunch of John Calvin, also go on and produce, I can't give specifics right now, but they produce um, texts that are not devotional texts. Right. (laughs) um, (laughs) That partake of some of the concerns of the day and are what we might consider explicit. Sure. I mean, I'm thinking right off the hand, like Jonathan Swift, you know, for example, is a uh, is a minister. Right. Uh, And yet uh, Gulliver's Travels begins with this extended eight paragraph masturbation joke. Right. I mean, there's this sort of um, there's this uh, uh, this kind of salaciousness that are involved in that. And so I don't see people like that. I don't see Christians in that that 
realm being as concerned about corrupting oneself as some people are today. Yeah, here we go. Um, yeah, she talks about how the same people who are involved in translating Calvin are also translating Ovid's Metamorphoses, which is, you know, very um, scandalous in many different aspects. There's violence and there's um, the the sexual proclivities of the characters. Um, some of the first sonnets are also published uh, by some of the people who are translating Calvin's sermons. So these things, um, according to Robinson, at least, are, are running together. There's not this divide between the people who read the Christian stuff and the people who read the not-Christian stuff at least during the Renaissance. And then somewhere after that, we start trying to disassociate the two. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, at some point now, I'm not sure, I'm recording many shows in advance here, so I'm not sure if this will fall before or after the show, but while we're recording this, I'm in the works uh, recording an episode with C. Derek Varn about uh, Mark Knoll's book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And I'm sure that when we mm-hmm. get uh, to that episode, uh, we'll probably have covered <laughs> a lot of this sort of historical uh, transition from when Christians, largely, but evangelicals particularly, started uh, being hostile towards things that were sort of challenging to the mind uh, in, in, in the faith in that way. I'm sure that Mark Knowles, the conversation about Mark Knowles' book will address this at some point. So uh, take a look either in the future or the past uh, on our website <laughs> to see if, uh, if we've already hit that a little bit. But yeah, that that's going to be a recurring theme, I think, here for the next uh, little bit on this show. What? One last thing I think I would add in here is that evangelical Christianity since the early 1900s has been largely defined by its by its separatist uh, tendencies. This was the movement that uh, produced or at least contributed to the growth of uh, Bob Jones was this desire to separate from those who are liberalizing theologically and um both the the more Pentecostal holiness traditions and then the more traditional um, fundamentalist um, and evangelical conservative evangelical groups came out of that that push to to separate, and I think the theological separation kind of spilled over into lots of other kinds of separation too, including cultural. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and economic uh, is yeah. as we mm-hmm. talk about here. Uh, also economic. Yeah, in a little bit. I guess uh, thinking historically, thinking in historical terms, um, I I'll, I'll just have to stick to my lifetime and, and my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I I the thing I the things that stand out to me as being um, sort of boycotted and banned by Christian culture largely had to do with like economic things. The one exception to that, the very powerful example, and from my youth is the. Um, the Martin Scorsese film, a uh, film version of the last temptation of Christ that was, that struck a real uh, chord in conservative evangelical churches. And there were mass movements of picketing video stores that would carry it and uh, theaters that would show it. And so that is an example from the eighties that uh, I remember very distinctly where Christians sort of mobilized uh, in an effort to um, not only avoid something themselves, 
but but squash it uh, in the public mind as well. Uh, and, and I don't know if, uh, if you guys can think of any other examples of specific works like that that have been that kind of a target. Now, I wrote here in the show notes that I, when I was growing up, the, the Lion King was considered mm-hmm. scandalous. I don't know how widespread that was, um, whether it was just my experience or not, but I didn't... I, I didn't watch that until I was 30 uh, because when it first came out, it was, it had new agey stuff in it. And so we'd better not watch it. I, that's a new one to me. I, I had not been aware that the lion King was a target. What exactly? I honestly, I have not seen the lion King. I, I, to be fair, <laughs> to be fair, my parents remember this in a different way than I do. And so, you know, if this is years in the past, so perhaps I've missed something, but what I recall is that, while some of my friends watched The Lion King and it was very popular when it first came out, it was it was off the table for me um, and I think for other people as well because, um, oh gosh, and it's been a couple of years now since I've seen it, so I can't speak in detail, but it, it had new agey themes in it about us all being one with the universe and this the circle of life, the circle of life, am I getting this? And, yeah. And so... Yeah. Um, so it was considered not a good film, uh, to watch. Oh, that's so on a, that's not necessarily on a content level, but sort of as a deep read, uh, there's this sort of, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, um, even more sensitive perhaps to, it doesn't just have the sex or the violence or whatever, but there it are, has the theological objection that we want to protect ourselves from. Yeah, in the show notes, I, I ran across, and I put this link in the show notes, uh, someone had written a blog post, basically, about um, uh, the Lego, oh, the Lego. movie. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. That was interesting. And, and it was called one of the most anti-Christian movies ever. Um, and so I uh, I remember uh, reading that, and I remember watching the movie and not really thinking much of it uh, myself. It was a fine movie. I just didn't, never saw it again. But the, the he read the the man upstairs in that movie as a metaphor for god and therefore the the negativity that is the movie sort of puts on that character uh, is meant to be a, a kind of a, a slight against god in the way that uh oh you know some atheist might have uh, in, in a work of art and so i thought that that was an interesting I and mean, so now again we're not talking about content per se but we're talking about meaning and, and how to read something uh and i think that that's another interesting uh distinction here uh jay do you have anything the earliest thing i can remember and again go it's a disney movie was aladdin if i recall correctly um my family was fine with the movies i had friends whose families weren't and if i recall correctly their reasoning was based on the inclusion of magic Mm. and jasmine's clothes or lack thereof. <laughs> oh gosh, um, I, I wasn't. I was unaware of that one. I guess. Um, yeah, like I said, I have never been a big Disney fan. Um, I'm like maybe a little too suspicious of Disney uh, as an art <laughs> as an art maker, and so I, uh, I I'm way woefully behind in my viewing of Disney films. Uh, so I have never seen Aladdin. I, I or The Lion King actually, and so. Um, 
but I do know that Disney is a frequent target of this kind of uh, activity, even up to this recent Beauty and the Beast uh, live mm-hmm. action version, because there was a gay character uh, who's extremely implicitly gay, apparently. Um, and yet, uh, you know, Franklin Graham and friends were all uh, about uh, boycotting that movie because you're going to, again, poison your children's mind in some way. Um, and so, yeah, that's a uh, Disney seems to be a, a lightning rod <laughs> for this this kind of activity. Um, so, okay. Um, and another example I can think of in terms, now this is more of an economic boycott. I don't know if you guys remember the whole, um, uh, Procter and Gamble, uh, Satanism, uh, <laughs> uh, controversy. This is when I was a little kid. I, I remember, uh, my mom particularly, but also, you know, people in the church, there were, there had been some through whatever evangelical mechanisms existed at the time, some rumor that, Procter and Gamble was a satanic company and that uh, people would uh, avoid all the products that they would sell because they thought that the money was going to devil worshipers or something like that. And it had something to do with the, the emblem, which was the sort of moon face with stars and that kind of thing. Um, and I remember that being uh, it, it very much reminded me of the conspiracy episode that we did. Jay, there was this uh, uh, there was this uh kind of panic about uh, about Satanism there. And there was this conspiracy about Procter and Gamble involved with that. And so you had a, a, a monetary boycott and uh, one of our listeners, uh, 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 Brett Chase had tweeted at me to make sure we covered this. And, and I actually, I, I have now mentioned it, but I also put some articles in the show notes about that. If you want to read more about the, uh, the Procter and Gamble, uh, controversy from the early eighties. It's a pretty famous, uh, example of Christian satanic panic. Uh, and it had to do around a company here, but there was a mobilization, uh, of people, uh, to, uh, avoid buying products from a certain company. Uh, and now that kind of thing happens, uh, to this day. And there's now a, a company, I have the link to this video as well in the show notes. There's a company called faith consumer something uh, that actually seems to be trying to organize these kinds of uh, this kind of economic activity. And I have a little clip of a, of a news report from a, a Christian news source here that talks about that to a small degree here. From the Supreme Court's decision on gay marriage to threats on religious liberty, conservative Christian voters feel a tad bit frustrated to say the least. But a new company called Faith Driven Consumer is giving them a chance to fight back with their wallet. The organization is rating how faith-friendly businesses treat consumers. Their research shows that faith-driven customers spent roughly $2 trillion every year. All right, so this is troubling to me (laughs) on a number of levels. Jay, you're nodding. Why is that? Because it harkens back to an issue that seems to come up on the show again and again and again, that we've traded spirituality for capitalism. Yes. Expand. (laughs) Go ahead. I I mean, it's... Honestly, I think one of the biggest idols in American Christianity is the almighty dollar. And I use the word, I use both words correctly. I believe I, I, I think most Christians in America actually worship their wallet, whether they want to admit to or not. But every time that something comes up in the news or whatnot, that we should be, you know, a cultural action we should be taking, it comes back to money. 
I don't know. That's just me. Yeah, I agree. What do you think about that, Megan? No, actually, I thought it was really interesting that we've linked the the boycotting of companies to the censorship of texts because, you know, much as I wish it were otherwise as an English teacher, the fact remains is that we're not really a, a huge nation of readers anymore. And as as these furors over, over scandalous texts kind of slide into the past, it's interesting and telling, I think, that they've, they've been replaced by a furor over companies and where our, our money is spent and the desire for separating ourselves from that which could contaminate us is still there. It's just in a different form. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, the, so that the God, that dual nature uh, between artistic uh, works and commercial activity that is almost can be seen as a transition of our increasingly consumeristic society, which has mm-hmm. seeped into Christianity, as Jay says, right? And and you have this uh, uh, the only way you can even think of engaging with the world is as a consumer uh, of of products, uh, and so and that's now the primary phase. Because you're right, I think that I don't see Christians boycott or you know raising arms against hollywood anymore in the way that they used to when i was a kid uh but now Mm -hmm. it's much more about starbucks and 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 whatever somebody did to hobby lobby or something like that Mm -hmm. right uh yeah and you've got this uh this transition into from art to commerce that uh, can be traced i think uh, very interestingly through uh this dichotomy i think that's uh, that's really cool um, I'm no longer going to watch any of these seasons of The Walking Dead live um, because, you know, it supports their ratings. Uh, the reason why is because AMC has decided to uh, boycott the religious freedom bit. So for all my believers out there, all my Christians out there, um, pretty much they're, they're saying that they don't want you to have rights um, in order to refuse um, service to people of the LGBT community, gays, uh, they want pretty much like preachers to perform gay weddings and uh, pretty much for you to go against your conscience when it comes to sin. Um, another thing I wanted to point out about that video though is that it's that whole uh, enterprise is built upon again I think this overblown story about how oppressed Christians are in America right and so anytime anything that happens that Christian culture doesn't like for whatever reason it is read as marginalization or uh, or a banishment or to the edges of society or something like that and I think that again so running from that assumption you have these people now and with this uh, faith-driven consumer um, <laughs> Uh, which is just let's just pause a minute on that name, a faith-driven consumer. Uh, I think that 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 name itself is kind of ironic to a hilarious degree. Um, but it's this whole enterprise is then built on this kind of false idea that Christians are somehow oppressed in society. Uh, and I think that uh, that's a really interesting um, phenomenon. I should probably look more into that company actually. Um, okay, uh, anything to add to that, guys? I do want to, I've, I'm going to kind of jump off a cliff here for a, for a moment. And because I, 
Okay, so if this were a book, this would be a footnote, right? <laughs> um, so here's my little footnote. I think that there is a small distinction between um, censoring a text and boycotting a company, which is worth pointing out, which is that in the company's case, the con the concern with the company is that we don't want to contribute to or help um, this ungodly company. The, we want to prevent our money from going and supporting them. Um, with the text, that concern reverses. We don't want the text or the movie to corrupt us and to bring us down. Oh. So the flow is different, the directional flow. Oh, that's a good, that's an interesting idea. Uh, um, and uh, that's a really good point uh, to bring up, I think, because it is a, a, a more outward uh, aggressive act and not a defensive act, I think. Uh, and so I think that, that that's a really good point to bring up. Although I did find uh, an article from 1988 in the LA Times um within the wake of the last temptation of Christ controversy um i there was a subsequent boycott of ET's uh video release uh from Christians who were frustrated with i believe it was Universal who uh Universal Pictures uh had um uh, released last, last Temptation of Christ. And this is six or seven years after E.T. was in theaters. Mm -hmm. And so what consumers then did, Christian faith-driven consumers of the time, uh, what they did was to get back at the company, they tried to organize a boycott against buying E.T.'s uh, video release of, of some years later. Uh, and, and so that's sort of a, a, a really interesting cultural moment where both of those directions are working together, right? <laughs> there, there's, yeah. Films will kind of hit the intersection anyway, because to a much larger degree than a book, they're a commercial enterprise um, with a with a corporation that we can actively t we that we can take the offense against, but they're also still like a text and that they could be um, contaminating uh, the the viewer with ungodly ideas or images. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so they're going to. Both, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I think that there's a, a really interesting kind of uh, cultural relationship between consumers of text and consumers of products that this subject uh, really kind of in unexpected ways <laughs> sort of brings out. Um, uh, so I, I guess I, this is sort of a disorganized conversation. Forgive me for that. Uh, it's sort of my fault. But I, a couple of things I wanted to talk about, and I guess this is sort of related. Um, there's a couple of um, uh, other examples of this kind of activity that I can think of from uh, historical in, in historical ways. One is the the comics, uh, the the uh, Mm -hmm. The censoring of comic books in the fifties. There was a uh, a book called Seduction of the Innocent uh, by someone named Wortham, who uh, argued that now not necessarily from an explicitly Christian perspective, uh, more from a psychological child development perspective um, that is rooted in conservative values that uh, comic books were corrupting youth. Right, and so he's writing largely about the the horror and crime comic book of the time like the ec uh a comic book which are, were pretty lurid uh and violent and 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 shocking by uh today's standards even um and so but also the the 
the superhero comics, like Superman and Batman and Robin were also targets of this sort of thing. And, and out of that came the, the little seal that goes, that went on comic books for many years, the comics code authority. Uh, and in order to get that seal and get the kind of distribution that a comic book needed in order to be, um, uh, profitable, you had to avoid certain topics, right? You had to uh, not show, uh, certain kinds of activity. Now that thing, that, code loosened over years and, and now comic books can be quite um, quite explicit but um, um, but yeah that is another example from history where people are sort of looking out for the kids right and, and you see it I mean and that is the same thing that was motivating Tipper Gore in, in the 80s to try and uh, put the advisory lyrics uh, on on record albums and, and things like that mm-hmm. and so yeah this is sort of a uh, another that, in, intersection of, of go ahead what then the video game ratings as well. Yeah, and the video game ratings, right? And, and another thing where, where cultural object and commerce sort of merge uh, in the midst of this uh, this this frenzy to, to ban and, and avoid uh, avoid things. Do you know anything about the the video game stuff? I'm totally ignorant of video games. Um, it basically, from what I understand, it grew out of the same the same movement um, started by Tipper Gore back in the '80s with the same idea that you know, our kids were being desensitized to sex violence, what have you. And so there needed to be some way to monitor what was being consumed. That's the way under, I understand it. That could be totally wrong. Yeah. And again, it's not, it's not explicitly Christian in this form, no. right? Um, but it, it's, it's not unrelated either. <laughs> so, well, if, if, especially if we're talking about the time period, you know, we're, we're in the eighties, we're in the Reagan era and that's one of the, one of the um, eras that when most Christians talk about uh, making America great again, that's one of the p- periods they look to. Yeah. Yeah. One of, uh, I, I got, you would say willful ignorance, right. Uh, of the world. You sort of turned a blind eye to things that are uncomfortable. Uh, uh, and, and one of the primary goals I think of art is to make us a bit uncomfortable uh, in order to like shake us up to some uh, for some productive end. Uh, And I think that that is what kind of gets lost uh, in Christian cultures, avoidance of these, of these issues. Um, um, I, I, you guys have a lot of notes. Go ahead, Megan. I was just going to say making, making us uncomfortable. That's, that's how we learn. I've been working on my, an online class right now in learning in one of the articles that I was assigned to read brought up Vygotsky and pointed out that yeah, his zone of proximal development, right? It means that you're pushing your students just a little bit beyond their comfort zone and, and that's what helps them learn. If you push them way out of their comfort zone, they, they don't learn a thing. And if they stay comfortable, they still don't learn a thing. Um, the, the discomfort is, is necessary to learn. Um, and discomfort in art, too, would is a, is a uniquely valuable type of discomfort because you're, you're still safe at the same time that you're encountering the art. You have people around you, uh, hopefully, who can, um, you know, let's say you're, you're reading a, non, a non-Christian text, maybe Ovid's Metamorphoses, since we were talking about that, that earlier, right? Um, which I was assigned to read in undergrad. So um, you've got people around you to make sure you don't follow, follow the ideas or the content and go off a cliff. And 
can help you turn that discomfort to good use. How, how does this relate to kind of moral development, though? I guess this is a, a question where I want to challenge my own assumptions. Um, and so I can get how if I teach a student how to read um, uh, some sort of mo- like Faulkner, some sort of modernist prose mm-hmm. that is, is difficult and not immediate, how, how I can sort of walk them through that process, pushing them into a, dis- a sense of discomfort intellectually uh, and then then making it easier the next time they're confronted with some sort of text like that. Right. I can I can get that. Is there the same kind does the same process uh, hold in moral development? Like, I mean, if I want to if I want my kid to challenge. So am I going to play ACDC's Highway to Hell for her um, uh, in order to push her morally? Is it the same kind of process we're talking about here? I would. Yes, definitely. Um, So my. I've been interested in this to some degree all my life, but it really came to consciousness for me during a class that I took my last semester of undergrad that was focused just on the works of John Milton. And we were assigned to read um, Milton's Areopagitica. And this is of course his, so it's the, um, the Commonwealth period and um, they've kicked out the Catholic censors, and Milton is all excited because now that the Catholics are gone, they're going to be able to publish whatever they want and read, and then the Puritans get the same idea, and they want to shut down everything that doesn't agree with uh, the Puritans. So the Catholics shouldn't be allowed to publish their works. And Milton, good Puritan though he is, is super upset about this and he writes Areopagitica, um, you know, the Areopagus, the the place for free discourse in defense of people being able to speak their mind, to publish tracts which, you know, in, in his situation, to publish tracts that are uh, vocally Catholic or vocally against the Commonwealth. Today we could extend that to The Lion King, which is um, New Agey, or the Lego movie, which is um, possibly atheist, or mm. other texts that espouse a non-Christian view of the world. And Milton makes the point that we don't grow by only going through easy stuff, that we need to encounter difficulty and hardship in order to grow. And one of the best ways to encounter that difficulty and hardship is to read about it in in a book. And so the the key quotation here is, um, he writes, he that, um, the reader that can apprehend and consider vice with all her baits and seeming pleasures, and yet abstain, and yet distinguish, and yet prefer that which is truly better, he is the true wayfaring Christian. I cannot praise a fugitive and cloistered virtue, unexercised and unbreathed, that never sallies out and sees her adversary, but slinks out of the race where that mortal garland is to be run for, not without dust and heat. And so, you know, the point here is that he that can abstain, um, while still seeing while still seeing something not virtuous in front of him if you're 
trying to eat healthy, we wouldn't necessarily say that you have your your tendency towards unhealthy eating under control if you don't have any brownies in the house at all. But the instant you get brownies in the house, you eat like five, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you still have to keep them out of the house, that's maybe not as self-controlled as having them in the house and only being able to eat one and, uh, you know, being self-controlled enough for that. And so that's what what Milton is going for here is he wants your virtue to increase where you to the point where you can see it and understand it, but still stick to the truth. Absolutely. What a great uh, resource to bring into this. Um, Jay, do you have anything to add to that? I was going to say that I th- back with your original um, hypothetical, you know, um, introducing something something hard to make something in the future easy. I think one reason why certain things are um, boycotted or censored in the Christian community is that they're not comfortable with being uncomfortable. Hmm. Um, that they like or that many Christians enjoy being certain. And especially in the, in the circles that I'm familiar with, there's really not a lot of place given for allowable doubt. That somehow doubt is one of the greatest sins that one could commit and still be considered a, still be considered a Christian. Um, not sure if my point's coming across there, but I know, um, you know, sometimes asking hard questions about the scriptures or about Christianity in general is frowned upon rather than encouraged. And so I think in some ways um, there are those who seek to avoid that. And so if no one's taught to think or if no one is ever put into a hard situation, then those other uncomfortable situations won't come up. For sure. I might have not gone down a rabbit trail there. No, no, but that's where dogma comes from, right? Is is this sort of... Um uh, resolute determination uh, to not challenge what you have inherited, right? Uh, whatever, whatever thought you've inherited, uh, and therefore, kind of, I think, rest in it a little too easily. Uh, and as you guys were both talking, I, I, I was thinking of Matthew Arnold, uh, as I want to do. Uh, uh, but in uh, Culture and Anarchy, his, to me, a, one of his great lines is, uh, "Where was the hope of making reason and the will of God?" prevail among people who had a routine which they had christened reason and the will of God in which they were inextricably bound and beyond which they had no power of looking uh, so they have already defined this is sort of uh, like getting back to Jay's point they've already defined what is good uh, there are clear borders around that thing is what is good and that is reason and will of the reason reason and the will of God in that little box that we've created, right? I can't see beyond that box, right? And so this is where art uh, comes into play, um, is that gives us a vision outside of those little boxes, so that we can constantly be thinking about what the what reason and the will of God actually actually is, not just the the conception that we're comfortable living in. Uh, and, and I think that that that. I think he must have, he might have been thinking of Milton uh, when he when he was uh, when he was writing that Megan that was that's a very uh, I think close uh, uh, parallel to the to the quotation you just read mm-hmm. um, and I'll uh, I'll try and put remember to put links uh, to that on the show notes uh, and and so yeah I think that what we're uh, what we have there is a, is a pretty good uh, explanation of the danger 
of uh, of this kind of activity of avoiding things that challenge us. Um, I do think I think it's fair though uh, to think about what's to be gained. I mean, so there's certainly things that are not worthy of our attention, right? Uh, and so how do we uh, judge that? I mean, just because I'm a teacher, maybe even at a Christian college, and say it's okay to read. Fitzgerald, it's okay to read Tim O'Brien. Trust me, trust me, right? Uh, uh, how do they know? I mean, are there things that are worthy of uh, of avoiding? And how do we know the difference between those two things? There are things that I think are are worth av- avoiding. Um, there are things that I don't uh, read or watch. Um, notably, in graduate school, there was a novel that I felt was it was flagrantly anti-Christian and it was also um, fairly graphic sexually and I just decided other things were more worth my time and uh, just did not bother bother finishing um, that particular the particular novel. If a student came up to me, uh, you mentioned the student who didn't in your class who didn't want to finish uh, the things they carried. Yeah. Um, and if a student came up to me and said, "You know, we're we're reading this particular text, and I, I don't feel comfortable reading it," um, I, I would honor that because I don't think it's my business to tell my to tell my students specifically in the moment what their conscience should be telling them. Um, You know, generally I try to, I teach Areopagitica and I try to encourage freedom and free thinking. And like Jay was uh, pointing out, a willingness to, to be open to hard questions. Um, But when it comes down to the actual texts, that's not a call that I, I can make um, for them. I don't want to harm them in that way. Um, yeah, I get that. And, and so I, I, this is a, something that, that I struggle with with internally, I suppose. It's not like a big struggle in my life. but It is, a, is an open question for me. I, I, Lionel Trilling somewhere writes something about having read books that um, – read had tried to read something and he bored the text is how he puts it like um he wasn't emotionally ready to engage with that text i think this is on the teaching of modern literature now that i'm thinking about it um and so he the the text he wasn't bored with the text he felt that he was boring to the text okay and so and years later though he would go back to it and had having matured he was then ready for that text and, and so i Yet there's a degree at which my kid might not be ready to listen to the Dead Kennedys with me, right? Or not every song from the Dead Kennedys catalog, right? Um, um, and so, because they have listened to some of them, actually. So, um, but uh, um, but uh, uh, beyond, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, there is a sense at which uh, I'm pushing their musical taste a little bit there and their kind of moral vision of the world uh, by introducing them to uh, a song about. California right um, and yet there are other songs that have some material that they're not ready for and I think they need to grow into um, and I just I, ne- I never know what that line is uh, and, and with children it's one thing and when you're talking about adults it's another uh, I, I don't know why I should try and fight somebody about going to see um, 
uh, the Last Temptation of Christ. I actually that's not a good example of a movie I would tell someone to go see. But if there uh, if there were another movie out like that that is sort of challenging to Christians, like famously challenging to Christians, um, I, I think there's I don't know why I should or when I should fight with adults about about that issue. Uh, do you guys have any wisdom on that? I I mean I'm not sure it is our place to to fight with an an adult and say overcome your overcome what your conscience is telling you and go see this so uh, it's a weird place to be in because on the one hand i feel very strongly that most books most artwork is most movies are are open if a Christian wants to go see them and is not convicted with their conscience um, about it. All truth is is God's truth, and you know, we can learn and grow by doing by doing battle um, even with with so-called evil texts. But on the other hand, we don't get to decide for other people what is and is not on the watchable list um, or on the readable list or on the companies I will support list. Yeah. I I have a lot of uh, close friends and family members who, you know, um, so I watch Firefly and I really like Firefly and it's great, um, but it has a couple of, you know, um, off color, a little bit of off color language, a couple of off color scenes, and I'm not going to sit uh, my my family members down who don't watch that and say, okay, you've got to watch this, and you're not living rightly if you don't because that's not where they are in in their personal life. There, I've got a friend who doesn't shop at Target anymore, and I'm not going to sit her down and say, hey, I think you're making the wrong decision. That's not a call I get to make for her. And yet it's a problem though, right? When, when Christians are, I mean, there's a problem for Christianity when so many Christians kind of blindly reject things that challenge them. And so I, this is the, this is where I can't reconcile my feelings. Like on a personal level, yeah, I would have a hard time. I'm looking at my poster of taxi driver that I've hanging up on my office door right now. Uh, and, and so like, I think that's a, a truly great movie and one of my favorite movies. And, and, and there's a lot of wisdom to be uh, arrived at by wrestling with that movie. Uh, and I think Christians would benefit from doing it. Uh, and so on a personal level, I can't imagine going to some people in my church and saying, you know, you really ought to watch this movie and think about God. Right. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> but on a, I, 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 a level of idea, uh, idealism, I guess, like, I think Christians should go to watch tra- taxi driver. Right. Uh, and so I, I don't know how to reconcile these two things. Uh, uh th- there is a problem that uh, has arisen in Christian culture, um, because of this this prickliness about being offended about by text uh, having their faith offended by text and so i don't know how to reconcile that and and i don't know yeah on a personal level i am not going to get in somebody's face and hand them stick a copy of taxi driver in their face and tell them make them go watch it right uh but on a like ideological level i think that's the best thing that could happen and so i i don't know i again i don't know how to reconcile those two things 
Um, and I, I will say, so when we talk about the like stupidity of some of these boycotts, like the ET one was kind of particularly stupid. Uh, here's another one. This this guy is a joke is Josh Fierstein. Um, he usually makes like cell phone videos of himself in his car screaming about stupid crap. Um, and uh, he got involved in the Starbucks thing. And this is sort of, I think, the apotheosis of the stupidity of this mindset. Starbucks has one customer pretty heated and not over its coffee, but its cups and specifically the new holiday versions that are simply red there, kind of a minimalist look. Starbucks deciding this year to drop the reindeer and the ornaments from these cups and a former pastor and self-proclaimed social media personality had this to say about it. Do you realize that Starbucks wanted to take Christ and Christmas off of their brand new cups? That's why they're just plain red. In fact, do you realize that Starbucks isn't allowed to say Merry Christmas to customers? Well, I decided instead of simply boycotting, well, why don't we just start a movement? So when I went in and I asked for my coffee, they asked for my name, and I told them my name is Merry Christmas. So guess what? Starbucks, I tricked you into putting Merry Christmas on your cup. Okay, I mean, I'm not wrong. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard, right? Uh, And so uh, I think that that mindset comes from an avoidance of going to see taxi driver right uh and so i should i be in somebody's face about when they tell me that they don't want to go see a movie uh that that is bad for christians to go see or they don't want to watch the simpsons which is another example from my childhood when it first came out uh that people would you know thought bart simpson was the devil and so if you watch the simpsons you were off you know, off the reservation. And so, uh, like, I, I feel like there is a responsibility to push back on that to some degree. Uh, what degree that is, I don't know. But I feel like if we had done that culturally in the 80s, this idiot in his car uh, wouldn't exist now, right? <laughs> and so, um, uh, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you, you keep asking, you know, what, what our degree of you know, I guess argument fighting interaction should be. And I would think it would depend on the individual and our own personal relationship with them. I keep coming back to the idea in Paul's letters when he's discussing the meat sacrificed to idols. Yeah. And, you know, each person needs to be accountable to God. Ultimately, that's who we're accountable to. We're not accountable to each other, although sometimes we like to act as if we are. Um, and so just as we can't convince someone else to go see, say, Taxi Driver, how much should they be trying to influence us as well to say you're not a good Christian if you, you know, buy Starbucks or go to Target or, heaven forbid, go to the Starbucks that's in a Target? Um, <laughs> oh, no, that, that's that's a double whammy right there. And buy Taxi Driver while you're there. Yes. Yes. You'll end up in a very deep circle of Dante's Inferno oh. here. Yeah. <laughs> If you're allowed to read anyway. that. <laughs> well, I do. Um, so I, I think it ultimately comes down to our own personal, uh, as to, it comes down to our own understanding of what our personal responsibility is in each given situation, if that makes sense. And here, I guess like, what... Like, like it, it, there's not a, a one-size-fits-all for each f- that will cover every single interaction that we'll ever have on the issue of that yeah. Yeah. And as I'm getting this and this is, uh, you know, we didn't script this conversation. I didn't intend on going here necessarily, but this is sort of where I'm, my thinking is right now. Um, I feel like this cultural problem, this kind of naivete, this willful um, ignorance um, has like real 
theological ramifications as well. I think a lot of theological problems in Christian thinking come um, are probably related to this sort of lack of curiosity outside of what one has always thought, right? Um, and so I feel like there are institutional reasons that this has become a problem. I think Mark Knoll's book gets at that. Uh, I'll put a link to that book. Uh, uh, I'm sure many people have already read that one, um, and we are have another show about it. But um, the tracing the kind of institutional reasons as to why Christians increasingly have gone down this intellectual road, right? And so I think there's got to be an institutional solution to that problem. Uh, and, and maybe the Christian college is something that uh, instead of uh, coddling, maybe I shouldn't have let that kid off the hook uh, when I was at that college in that situation. Maybe I should have punished her via her grade to make her read something uh, on an institutional level. I, I don't know. I feel like the Christian college is one place that uh, we can push back on that kind of naivete. But I also think that the local church needs to stop taking its cues from like pop pop, pop culture figures like Josh here mm-hmm. um, and, and more like heady, like intellectual figures uh, about how to engage with culture. Uh, and I think that those are the two fronts that I can think of institutionally where we can start uh, pushing back. Um, I have no idea how to start a movement of that kind. Um, but uh, but I think that that's something that individual Christians really need to uh, start considering, at least. Um, I don't know what your thoughts on are, are there. Megan, you actually teach at a Christian college. <laughs> so... So thinking about Jay's comment that a lot of it depends on our relationship to the other person or people involved and um, our responsibilities in that situation, I actually think that assigning difficult texts, stuff that you have to wrestle with, either in terms of the content or in terms of the ideas, is is a good way. And, you know, just because the students don't speak up and say, hey, this is making me a little uncomfortable, doesn't necessarily mean that it's not making them uncomfortable. And so that might be, uh, you know, we're still pushing the pushing the boundaries um, for them a little bit, mm-hmm. a little bit more. So I teach, um, I start my composition classes off with some essays on Oh, on giving or on gun control. Um, I used to have a couple of of more inflammatory ones, but discovered people couldn't. You make them too inflammatory, and, and people just get caught in these knee jerk reactions, and the critical thinking doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Um, and that encourages them to consider other viewpoints. But in literature, especially, I'll assign. Oh, I assigned uh, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula Le Guin this last year. And that is, you know, she's writing from a a non-Christian point of view. She's got a very Buddhist uh, worldview, uh, emphasis on balance. But the content there as well, like the literal content on the page, it it was, I gave my first ever trigger warning. I alerted the students that... (laughs) there is child abuse in in the story. Um, it made the students uncomfortable, but it also led to a good discussion and hopefully helped them realize that discomfort can 
be an opportunity for for learning. Um, I'm not a I'm not a church leader. I'm not sure what that would look like in the church. I think our churches are consumed more with entertainment than thinking. So, well, and I think that you're in our colleges too often. Even the Christian ones, maybe especially the Christian ones. I mean, just be honest with ourselves. Um, are uh, obsessed with with consumerism of a different kind. Mm-hmm. I mean, when college is sold as a, a avenue to a job, and this is why you're there, um, what gets left behind in that conversation is that kind of moral challenge that should help you grow spiritually and ethically and morally and intellectually along the way to getting this great high paying job that I'm sure you'll love your whole life. Um, and so, um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I feel like you're actually. In the example that you gave, Megan, using the institution in a way that's productive towards these ends, whereas mm-hmm. I'm not sure everyone else is. If I'm just there sort of teaching them whatever's in the Norton anthology, <laughs> because it's uh, it's you know it's what people teach. It's what you read in this kind of class and just thinking about it in terms of skills and transferable uh, knowledge and that kind of thing. Um, I'm ignoring the kind of larger moral role that that institution plays and the churches I think you're talking about uh, in the same way uh, I think they operate the same way I think um, very often you have churches that are more concerned with uh, numbers and and that sort of thing right and so it's this kind of again business model uh, thing about having butts in seats Um, and what gets left out there are the kind of moral challenges um, and that uh, make people uncomfortable and therefore um, grow a little bit. I have to say, I was a little proud of my, I'm always proud of my pastor, uh, Rob. <laughs> he was, you know, he's been on the show a couple of times now. Uh, he, uh, on this last Sunday, um, made us all squirm a little bit uh, because we had Bible school and he noted how all the, it was almost all girls in our little Sunday performance of what they did in Bible school. And he said, is baseball really that important? Like how many of your kids are actually going to play baseball? <laughs> you know, and so that's why the boys aren't here is because they're all in baseball leagues. Right. And so uh, in Western Pennsylvania, that, uh, that that's a challenge. Right. And so uh, and so I thought that kind of thing needs to happen uh, more often. And churches avoid it in, in the same way that uh, other institutions do. Jay, you have anything to add to this? You're quiet today. Right. I guess. um with what I've been mulling over the last couple minutes, you were we've been talking about how the church as an institution might push back against certain cultural nor against certain of our cultural practices, and my mind went to the uh, the uh, oh the Southern Baptist Convention, which mm. has been in the news recently. Yeah, and the stances that they've been taking. But on the other hand, I would and now I can't say this. For certain, but I would imagine that most of the churches that are doing the things that we're talking about would be what would be might be considered fundamentalist. Yes, yeah. no. Yeah. Which many of them don't belong to a convention like that. Right. They're they're very anti not not anti convention, but they wouldn't belong to the SBC or the uh the G the G A R B C or some other national association like that to feed each other or to um i've lost my train of thought but but you know what i'm saying that as an institution you know it, then it goes back to it to the colleges that are training the pastors and so on and so forth 
Yeah, who is mediating our, who do we let mediate our, our thinking on, on the world, our experience, right? And so when right. these kind of traditional institutions don't take up that mantle, they leave it to pop culture, right? And so this works mm-hmm. in the secular world as well. Um, if, uh, if the institution of higher education uh, in general isn't uh, mediating the world for people, it's letting MTV do it or or, or HGTV or whatever, right? Um, and in the same way, in the, in the church world, if it is no longer taking up this sort of task of, uh, of mediating the world, it's leaving it up to commercially driven, popular forms of Christianity. Your um, your fish radio stations, your uh, mm-hmm. David A. R. White film uh, with a like, pure flex film uh, industry, uh, and all that sort of thing. And those tend to be very kind of uh, insular. Uh, you called the, what, did, what word did you just use? Um, you didn't say dumbed down, but there's the, they, they, they become very fundamentalist um, mm-hmm. uh, in, in their thinking. And so, uh, yeah, I think that that's a consequence of institutions no longer taking the life of the mind seriously enough. Right. And, and I and I wonder if the economic forms of boycott that we see are the natural outcome of this these generations of cultural boycotts that we've uh, we've all experienced and, and lived through. Um um, so yeah, I, um, I remember again, when I was a kid, always getting drugged to these, uh, uh, rock and roll seminars where some usually Southern guy would come up and <laughs> start railing about all this music and playing records backwards and that sort of thing. Uh, and, uh, and, and thinking at the time, well, I had never even heard of this band until you just played it for me. Right. Uh, uh, and it's kind of sounds good now. And so, uh, I remember thinking how self-defeating that, that effort to sort of keep things down was, but a lot of my, you know, uh, cohort, my people, my age grow up to have that same kind of, uh, whatever reductionist view of secular art. Um, and so, yeah, I think that there's, this is an ongoing problem with Christian culture. And I, I, in many ways, I think it's getting worse with the rise of Christian specific media and, and the way that that's so easily marketed within our churches, uh, to Christian consumers, uh, of media, faith driven mm-hmm. consumers to give them the ground. Yeah. Okay. The Bible says that Satan is the prince of darkness. Prince is someone that has authority in a specific kingdom. If you get in the kingdom of darkness, Satan has authority over you. Whenever you read an occult book, you are walking into the kingdom of darkness. Whenever you go to an occult movie, you are walking into the kingdom of darkness. Whenever you start doing, uh, playing with Ouija boards and things of that nature, you are walking into the kingdom of darkness. You are inviting demon spirits to infect you and to take you over. Um, do you guys have other stuff to add? I see a note about Alex Jones here. I didn't. I didn't get the. Oh, that was. Uh, <laughs> I put that in there in terms of the is there sometime are there sometimes things that we shouldn't should not pay attention to ah. and uh that came so at the time of that we're recording this i had watched a john oliver segment on alex jones and was really blown away by how <laughs> shouty and angry he was yeah. and then of course he says absolutely uh terrible things and 
I would class under somebody that's really not worth paying attention to whatsoever. <laughs> like at, at the very minimal level there, you can find something better to do with your day. Um, washing the dishes. With me. <laughs> I, I, have, you seen the, have you seen the video with the Alex Jones rants sent like someone auto-tuned the Alex Jones rants. Yes, to a bony bear, uh, a bony bear style yeah. of indie rock. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite remarkable, actually. I'll add, I'll try to add that to the the show notes if you haven't seen that one yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's really really funny. Um, I you know with Alex Jones, I, now that's an example. So obviously, someone who's watching him and taking him seriously, I, mm-hmm. there's something wrong with the mind right there. I mean, there's something. Uh, that needed corrected along the way. If you're taking what the thing about chemicals turning frogs gay and, uh, and And depending (laughs) on which of his stories he believes, even he doesn't believe everything he says. Didn't he try to say that he was satire? Yeah. Well, yeah. When he was, when he was in the, the, the child custody thing, he was, they're using his own tapes to prove his mental instability. And then he was saying he was a performer doing satire. Right. Um, Which I probably, I actually kind of, I'm willing to believe. Um, but yeah, so someone who's taking that kind of thing seriously, there's something wrong with the mind. I guess the same person who thinks that professional wrestling is real and, and approaches it from that level, that's not good. But to watch professional wrestling while being in on the joke, I wonder, I don't know. I, I don't listen to Alex Jones um, other than the clips that, you know, get passed around. But. I, I don't all either. He was, on my mind completely because of that one segment that I watched, which was making fun of him and exposing his product selling side business as, you know, the main reason that he, he exists to make a lot of money for himself. So, yeah. And, um, and the cynic in me is suggesting that the Christian institutions, media institutions, that push these kinds of boycotts are doing the same thing. I mean, I think that in many cases it isn't a sincere concern for morality, but it's profit driven. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are, uh, you know, I don't want to go into details or specifics here, but I think there are obvious examples of charlatans out there who use this sort of easy of uh, boycott culture morality uh, as a way to rake in cash and donations uh, for, mm-hmm. for, um, uh, for themselves. Um, mm-hmm. um, so uh, do you guys have anything else to add? This has been a, a rather quick hour. Um, <laughs> do you have uh, anything else you want to talk about before we uh, hit the, the close button on this one? I had one other point uh, that I, that I wanted to make about artistic standards because so I left I left a link here in our in our shared document planning the episode at the bottom of your your link to the Lego movie and how it was anti-Christian because of the references to uh, the man upstairs. I thought it reminded me of this article that the Christian Feminist podcast posted recently about how Wonder Woman was, quote, the most accurate on-screen depiction of biblical womenhood. Um, And I loved Wonder Woman. It was a lot of fun. And so I read this article and didn't agree with it, but enjoyed it uh, because it was about Wonder Woman. Um, But I think that in 
both cases, it indicates a tendency to judge the quality of art by its adherence to the way that we are interpreting scripture. Um, so what makes a, a particular movie a mm. good movie, a well-done movie, is whether it's doctrinally correct. Yeah. Um, scripting and other artistry um, to the contrary. So. Yeah, and I think that that's actually, I mean, this is more on a... Um, this article is more, I, I would put more on the progressive end of the, of Christianity. Um, but it's, it's doctrinally Lego sound. Or Wonder the Wonder Woman one. Um, uh, it's, it's more doctrinally sound for that end. Uh, and so that was, that's what makes it, that's what makes it a good movie, right? Is that it fits in with the ideology um, that you go into the, the, the way you sort of read the world. Right. And, and if it adheres mm-hmm. to the way you read the world, then it is a quote good movie. Right. Um, and I loved Wonder Woman too. I thought it was great. Um, finally, a, 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 to me, unquestionably good DC movie. Um, I liked man of steel, but, uh, the rest of them I, I hated, but, um, so, um, uh, Jay, do you have anything to add? Well, we've talked about a lot of problems and I guess a few solutions. And, uh, I guess I'll just go ahead and plug Chris Gertz's new book, the pietist option, which oh. is coming out in coming out in October. Um, I've been able to read it ahead of time. And so when this is coming out, I guess you said this might be coming out in September. Yeah. So, uh, October 3rd, mark your calendar, um, his new book comes out. And I would recommend Chapter 5 and Chapter 6 in the book, which deals with living as a Christian community in a non-Christian world. Um, is it titled? And, is it the, the, ahead, and the spirit that we should, uh, it's fine. Go ahead. Is it titled that as a specific nod to the Benedict option and all the other little corollary options that we've been talking about lately? I don't think so. I think when they started work on it, when they started work on it, it was a totally different working title. Okay. Um, so that might have been a, might have been a publisher okay. decision or an editor decision. They do explain why they chose pietist and option, neither of which really include um, Dreher specifically, mm-hmm. although it is, although it is, uh, in my opinion, it is an obvious repudiation of his ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And, a, um, a, go ahead. If Dreher's been able to read it yet or not, but I do know that there's been a little bit of a kerfuffle on the in the uh, on the internet regarding the two, the Pietist option and the Benedict option. I guess uh, Garrett said something like Dreher thinks that he's given up or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, well, anytime anyway, <laughs> when Nathan Gilmore interviewed Rod Dreher uh, for the Christian Humanist Profile show, he seemed like a lovely man uh, in that interview. But who whoever runs his social media, I mean, that is a prickly personality. <laughs> anytime somebody uh, pushes it all at Rod Dreher, he writes oh, ten yeah. thousand words about it, right? And so, uh, yeah, he is. Uh, he is. Uh, he's and the same thing. I think could be said to the. Uh, Oh gosh, the fellow who wrote uh, "Hillbilly Elegy," uh, J.D. Vance. Uh, he's very, very defensive uh, on uh, on social media, um, and so uh, yeah, I think that I found it interesting 
the in the word choice that that Dreer would say someone else has given up when he's the one advocating for withdrawing to our own communities. I can't believe we actually got through this far without mentioning Benedict Option yet, because that does seem to be probably the natural conclusion of uh, of this kind mm-hmm. of tendency. I, I think that it, it's a uh, if uh, Mark Knoll were to write, uh, you know, a new preface to his book or something like that, he would certainly, I think, try to trace it to what Rod Dreher's conclusions are uh, for the for the Benedict option It's just sort of this utter withdrawal and this kind of, you know, idolization and, of the family. Go ahead. And I think that, oh, my word, idolization of the family. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole nother issue. That, um that frustrates me. Um, but uh, as someone who's single, but um, Dreyer and Benop people would wave their hands at this point and would say, no, 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 you, you're misunderstanding us. We are not withdrawing. And uh, to the sense, in the sense that they do read more than C.S. Lewis types book, type books, you know, they go back and they read their Dostoyevsky uh, for instance, and they do um, insofar as they watch movies, they probably don't watch um, Facing the Giants or uh, sure, yeah. that, that group of film. In that sense, they're they're not withdrawing, but they're engaging with um, specific with texts that are specifically from a different point in history and a different worldview, rather than with contemporary works. Uh, again in part out of fear that the contemporary world will contaminate us, that we won't be able to sufficiently defend against the the ideas um, promulgated in in modern-day literature and films. Yeah. Whereas like Ovid, for example, to go back to that, is so like ancient and alien, um, it's doesn't challenge us as much as a Philip Roth book for my, for example. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, because that is contemporary and real and therefore more offensive. And so where there's something, there's so much distance with something like Ovid that they can handle it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that is a, uh, that, that book uh, has got some sea legs that uh, <laughs> Benedict Auction. I think that's going to be uh, a touchstone for, for a lot of things. And, and I have to say, you know, uh, I interviewed some folks from the Bruderhof, uh, on a previous episode and uh, Peter Momsen uh, was sort of a friend of, uh, of Rod Dreher and he was, um, you know, defensive, I think to some degree of him, not defensive, but uh, defending of him uh, uh, in, in some ways. Although I think that even the Bruderhof <laughs> in their, their uh, isolationist uh, ideology, I think uh, is less isolationist at heart than, than Rod Dreher is. And so, um, yeah, that's, that, that's uh, that was an oversight that we hadn't gotten there that far. I'm glad we finally did gotten to that until this far into the show. And I'm glad we finally did. Um, yeah. And the other thing I wanted to add, uh, if, if you guys have more to say, um, I'm not closing the show down necessarily, but, um, I do think that it's interesting at one point earlier, um, Megan, you were talking about Milton and talking about how the, the, the Catholic, um, censorship of printing in England was just sort of replaced with a puritanical one. Um, and I think that that's, uh, uh, worth thinking about its corollary today. I think that when you see um, 
a lot of the prickliness in liberalism, uh, in mm-hmm. American political liberalism, I think you there is its own sort of dogma. There is its own sort of mm-hmm. verboten uh, uh, culture that's out there. Uh, and, and I think this is not something that is isolated or specific to conservatively minded people, right? I think that, um, or even just religious people. I think that uh, there, this is this tendency of cordoning oneself off the Christians have been doing for some time has found its way into mm-hmm. the, into the echo chambers of our, of our general culture now. Absolutely. So we mentioned JD Vance earlier and I went to, Oh, I know, I know that hillbilly elegy has been assigned as a common book for the, you know, incoming freshman class to read at several major universities. Yeah. And there are, there are people who are upset and concerned about that because Vance's hillbilly story is not, um, they argue, representative of that people as a whole and or it it overlooks, it does not tell other stories that are important in that culture, uh, particularly stories of other minority groups such as um, African Americans or, or women. Right. Um, and so they're they say, you know, maybe we should not ask our students to read this uh, because it's it doesn't adhere to our doctrine. Right. And when I think I mean, and I'm actually pretty critical of that book in a lot of ways. I think he describes everything really well. I mean, I've come from a very, mm-hmm. very similar background. Uh, I, and I was on a show with uh, Jordan Poss. We teamed up with the City of Man podcast and mm-hmm. talked about that book uh, sometime back. If you go to look at the city of man feed uh you'll find that episode um i think that uh whereas he describes everything i think exactly right he draws every wrong conclusion (laughs) that you can draw uh for for i mean i just think he has all the wrong ideas about what he observes um that's my own personal take on that and yet uh i do think as a conversation opener that would make it an even better uh reason to assign it as a common read right I, i i think my own inclination is not to uh, be dismissive of it and ignore it as if it's not there, but to use it as uh, something to spin off a more robust conversation um, from. And so, yeah, I think that that's a good example of, you know, a, a secular liberal version of the same kind of uh, uh, dogmatism. Uh, and so I think that uh, that's a, that's a really good example. Um, y'all have anything else to, uh, to send us out with? All right. I, I, w- I want to add the one thing that I tell my students, because I I think this is really important, um, is the theo- one of the theological roots of censorship is we've talked all the time about this fear of contamination, that if I read that Philip Roth book um, or if I read watch The Lion King um, or if I read Harry Potter, I'm going to absorb its non-Christian outlook on the world and move away from from my faith. And this is this is Milton's argument that the assumption here is that contamination comes from the outside, and if we only raise the walls high enough, we can remain pure. And that's not the way contamination works. I right. mean, it goes back to to Jesus's conversation with the Pharisees about, um, you know, 
cleaning cleaning out the cup and the Pharisees are washing the outside of the cup, but it's still dirty because the inside is still clean. And I think that, you know, whether we are conservatives or uh, progressives and avoiding certain forms of entertainment or certain companies because of our values to, to some degree um, that comes from that same desire to clean the outside of the cup where we're still ignoring, ignoring the, the inside, um, our own moral responsibility and our, our own actions and whether they are rooted in righteousness or not. Yeah, I agree. And I also uh, take this opportunity to say once again that I think that one of the tricks of being a Christian in America is to be unaware of the things that we have sort of sanctified uh, through Christianity. Uh, So, for example, our worship of sports, uh, we find ways to make movies like Facing the Giants that make sports a Christian activity, right? And therefore, we are not critical enough of that kind of activity in our culture because we don't see it as alien to Christian culture uh, or to Christian theology, that is. And so uh, in the same way, I think that um, you sort of, that's what makes it easy to miss the dirty inside of the cup is that we don't even see it as dirty. We've, we've kind of made it, uh, we've, we've deluded ourselves into thinking that those specks are part of the paint job, right. Uh, of, of the cup. And so, uh, and, and I think that, uh, um, and the sort of commercialism that Jay pointed out earlier is another one, right. And that it's another mm-hmm. reason that we, we go towards this. Uh, we have to defend our marketplace from, uh, saboteurs and, communists right and so uh and so i think that uh uh this is a uh a, a good kind of uh thoughtful warning for us to be careful not what we see but what we ignore right <laughs> be careful little eyes what you don't read uh and so uh oh that's a good there, there's the name of the show i could not think of an of the name of the show be careful little eyes of what you don't read uh that that's the name of the episode nice. so um all right uh jay and megan thank you again this was awesome uh, it was a lot of fun to talk to you guys i had no idea really where this conversation was going. And I think we together stumbled across some really cool ideas. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the effort you put in and thanks for Megan. Thanks for uh, suggesting the show. Jay, thanks for being uh, around again and uh, being there to help us out. So uh, it was a lot of fun to talk to both of you Um, and uh, enjoy uh, the rest of your day and the rest of your school years. This is Michelle who says, I was watching a horror movie the other day on the recommendation of others. It was rather strange and awfully macabre. And then this past Sunday, I got into an accident leaving church. Did watching that creepy movie cause a curse or the Lord's protection to be lifted from me? Did I grieve the Holy Spirit by watching this series? Uh, A few years ago, I heard about a teenage girl who was demon-possessed. And people began to deal with the demon and try to cast it out. And you know what the demon said? I had permission. And the permission was granted when this child had gone to some double X rated movie or whatever it was and had allowed this thing to come into her. I know this sounds kind of otherworldly, but that's the way it is. 